Well, open your Bibles back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Thank you, Bob. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to finish up this chapter and get into uh, the first part of the second chapter. And tonight we're going to look specifically at Solomon himself. In the late 60s, a voice rocked a generation. Noted scholar, entrepreneurial philosopher, and brilliant theologian, Mick Jagger, (laughs) captured in five words the battle cry of all of man's existence. You know those words well, don't you? I can't get no... You are so paganized. I can't believe you know that word. I can't get no satisfaction. Not a great grammatical sentence, but a good one nonetheless. It might have been the only thing that Mick Jagger ever got right. He was right. And you know why he, we know he's right? Because he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he still couldn't get any satisfaction. That's an unmatched summary of life. Man's constantly on this, this pursuit to try to find satisfaction. What is this thing I can buy that will bring me satisfaction? What is this experience I can experience that will bring satisfaction? What can I do next to make me happy? Philosophers say that the drive to be happy is the greatest drive of human existence. In other words, the idea of being happy and not sad to experience pleasure and not pain, that's the deepest drive of human existence. You might say, but you know what, Rick? I found satisfaction in this or that or him or her, this job or that job. The problem is it doesn't last. There are satisfying parts of this planet. There are satisfying things on this earth. Common grace exists for everyone. People all enjoy the amusement park. You may have different rides that you enjoy, but people get to enjoy that. Believers and unbelievers. We get to have a a good burger. We had a delicious hamburger today with a friend from out of town. Unbelievers and believers alike can be satisfied with that. The problem is whatever you use to satisfy yourself doesn't last. Now we're going to use an illustration tonight that's going to be one we're going to stretch out over the coming months in our study of Ecclesiastes. You might have heard us talk about this before, but it's, it's a silly illustration, but it's one that works. Juicy fruit. It's the greatest chewing gum ever invented. It's sweet It's delicious. If you're thirsty, it will quench your thirst. If you're hungry, it will quell your hunger. It is incredible. Whoever invented juicy fruit, the gum juicy fruit, needs the Nobel Taste Prize. They were off the chart impressive. There's a problem with chewing juicy fruit. And that is that juicy fruit is amazing for about 60 seconds. And then it starts losing its appeal. Your tongue gets kind of nappy and you're, you either have a choice to put more in or spit it out. And the point is juicy fruit brings great taste for a moment, but it doesn't last. You have to replenish your desire. Let me read you a, a sad but accurate depiction of one, one man describes as human existence. This is what he said. Quote, give me, give me, give me. 
Most of us have, most of us have stood toe to toe, eyes popping, neck veins bulging, saliva flying, screaming at life. Most of us have grabbed life by the throat, slammed it up against the wall, sunk our thumbs into its jugular and shrieked, give me meaning, give me purpose, give me peace, give me happiness, give me something worth living for. I demand it. I cannot go on without something to live for. And for many of us, life stares back like a zombie with unblinking eyes, emotionless, silent, unruffled, and untouched by our outburst. Nose to nose with us, it breathes its foul, uncaring breath into our nostrils and its unfocused eyes look past us, unconcerned and even unaware of our presence. It was as though it never even heard us. With rage, fueled by alarm, we will, but you promised You promised me meaning and purpose and love. You led me to believe that I could succeed, that I could matter, that someone would care. You lied, you lied, you lied. Mixed with panic and despair, we slumped to the floor, eyes unfocused, head drooped to our chest, wondering where we go from here. We can't give up, yet we cannot go on. Meanwhile, life turns, back, turns its back on us and shuffles away, leaving us alone. We think our heart will break. We think our mind will split. We think our soul will shrivel like weak old roses, end quote. It's pretty grim, isn't it? But for those who live without Christ, that is a very common knee-jerk to existence. It may be that that's how you felt for an hour or a day or a week or a month or a season of life. Frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned, maybe just bored with life. Could be that you feel like a rat in a maze trying to figure out how to get out, frantically scurrying up and down, back and forth, blind tunnels looking for the path that leads to true meaning. Ever feel like one of those hamsters in the cage, you know those little, your kid or you have a kid, you get, get them the little hamster and there's that, that thing they run on that goes, they just run on that, what do you call that, a treadmill wheel thing for hamsters? Yeah, that's right. The, the kid, they say, this is what it is, Rick. I, I like that. That's exactly what it is. You just get on that treadmill and you run, 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 but never get anywhere. When I was in high school, I was a, a distance runner, uh, ran the mile and two mile in track, and my mom, my mom had an incredible insight into life. She, I remember one time said, why, why don't they just give both sides, when watching a football game, just give both sides a ball and it would solve this whole problem. <laughs> well, I ran the two mile, eight laps around the track, and um, uh, my, I, I, she came to a track meet, and my, my sweet mom from Tennessee, who who had a very, um, very simple and piercing view of life. Uh, I, I finished the track meet, did okay, and I came and sat with her, and she said, Ricky, I don't understand. So you just ran two miles, right? And I said, yes, ma'am, I did. And she said, and you ended up in the same place you started. I said, yes, ma'am, I did. And she says, well, if that's all right with you, I guess it's okay with me. <laughs> it's amazing how similar I am to a rodent. Um, There may be people in this room who've gotten beaten up with life recently or in the past. 
looking for satisfaction, looking for meaning, begging for purpose. Please know, though, that coming to the end of yourself is to come to the beginning of God. It's very appropriate to look into life and say, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Solomon told us in chapter one of Ecclesiastes that if you observe the world, it's kind of a cycle. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. It keeps going whether or not you like it. You're on an escalator that's going down and you can climb up as fast as you can, but it always goes to the bottom. You can't stop it. There's an endless cycle. Nature just screams that whether you're involved or not, it's gonna keep going. So Ecclesiastes is a book in which Solomon, the wisest human who's ever lived before or since, since except for Jesus, actually looks at life, looks at its emptiness, looks at its troubles, looks at the partial satisfactions we can have, and backs up and says, how do we make sense of this? And if there's anyone who could help us make sense of it, it is Solomon. Now remember, this is a book that is really kind of the, the second story of thinking, the second story of philosophical, theological musing. And yet, if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it was written to students. Remember your creator, second person plural, in the days of your youth. In other words, this was intended for kids to understand. It's not so esoteric and philosophical that you can't understand it. What's difficult is to accept what it says, not understand what it says. Quick review, Solomon we looked at a few weeks ago. He's the son of David, chosen by God to be king. He's given in 1 Kings 3 and 4 this incredible gift of wisdom. God says, I'll give you anything you want. He asks for wisdom, wisdom to rule the people well and to discern right from wrong, good from evil. God grants him that wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11 is where you find his biography. Then he entered into these foreign treaties with foreign wives. Remember how it went. That if you, had a, if you wanted to secure a treaty with Egypt, you would send the Pharaoh some young Egyptian women and he would send you some, some young Hebrew women and he would send you some young Egyptian women. You would then um, uh, have children with them and that would secure not being able to attack each other because now you're related. It was a foreign treaty. The exact treaty, by the way, in Deuteronomy 17, that God said, do not have such. Solomon did. And we found out in chapter 11 that he held to these women in love. And they turned his heart away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to their gods. This was Solomon. The gift of wisdom was given to Give spiritual leadership to the people of God. But here in Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon misused his wisdom. In verses 1 through 11, which we've already looked at, it's a poem that shows all is vanity. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment. It's gone. It's that juicy fruit that tastes really good for a few seconds, and then it tastes bad. It's fleeting, unreliable, nothing ultimately reliable in life. Now here in verse 12, there's a shift. There's a shift from third person, where Solomon's generic, to first person. He talks about himself. It's autobiographical. After this poem, these first 11 verses, of the assertion that nothing ultimately is reliable, all is vanity, the question also has to be asked, Solomon, how do you know that? How do you know that? Why should we believe you? 
What in the world do you have to offer us? What does this guy who lived 10 centuries ago have to do with teaching you and me about life? So in verses 12 through 18, and really leaking into the, into the first part of chapter 2, Solomon gives us six reasons to believe him. We're going to follow an outline tonight, this tonight. It's very quick, very brief. Six reasons to believe that Solomon knows what he's talking about. Let's dive into this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. The first reason that he gives us is his exaltation, his position, his exaltation. Verse 12, I, Koheleth, that's the Hebrew word for preacher, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is exaltation. He was the king, meaning he had access to insight, wisdom, knowledge, pleasure, money, fame, anything he wanted. When we get into chapter 2, we're going to find out something interesting about Solomon. Think about this. He had unhindered, unhindered opportunity. He could do anything he wanted. Add to that, he had unlimited wealth. He was the richest man in the world. First Kings tells us that walking around in Israel, is the stones were like gold and silver. That's how, how wealthy it was during Solomon's reign. Now, I, I mentioned to you last time that there's some debate about whether Solomon really wrote Ecclesiastes or not. This verse, to me, proves it without question. And the reason is, it says, he was king over Jerusalem. There were only three kings who were king in Jerusalem. Now, had it been uh, after his his uh, reign, it would have been a divided monarchy. We know by reading the kings and, and um, uh, chronicles that you were either king over specifically Israel, which was talking about the northern kingdoms, or you were king over Judah, the southern two tribes. Only three people are said to be king in Jerusalem, literally king over Jerusalem. Only three. Remember who they were, right? Saul and David and Solomon. Well, now we have three options for this author. Was it Saul? Not on your life. No way. Was it David? Absolutely not. Couldn't have been. Because this was the person who built the temple. There's only one person this could have been, which is Solomon. Doesn't say he was king over Judah, which would have been the southern tribes, says, or Israel, the northern tribes. It says he was king over Jerusalem. He was exalted. He was the king. He was, he was the top of his game. So his exaltation alone gives him credibility to be heard. If a president or a king walked in tonight, regardless of any political persuasion, you would automatically, intrinsically give them your ear because of their position. So if nothing else, his exaltation, his position should give us reason to Listen to him as a credible source. Number two, we find in verse 13, his exploration. Look at verse 13. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom. Remember, he's given this gift of wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. What in the world is he talking about? Unlimited resources, unhindered power. His use of his wisdom, which should have been to lead the people, is now used on his own exploration. We'll watch this in the first 12 verses of, um, 11 verses rather, of chapter 2. He said, you know, I'm wise. I've got this insight 
It's naturally, naturally attained. It's divinely given. It's been honed by God. I have the ability to understand. So I'm going to do an exploration of this thing we call life. He set out to explore all that life is about. And his conclusion is that life is indeed cursed. He says, this is a, it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He says, life is something that we're afflicted with. Now that's true unless you have a relationship with the creator. He's gonna conclude with that. But he explored and said, you know what? I'm gonna see what this world has to offer as we'll see in a moment with his experiment. It didn't give him back what he wanted. It didn't bear his weight. He gives us a third reason to listen to him in verses 14 and 15, his experience. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. That he, as a king, he would have been uh, overseeing projects and, and uh, uh, given assignments. He'd, he'd seen lots of people come and go. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. When you see under the sun, that means life outside the garden and before eternity. It's a broken world. And behold, and we've said over and over, when you see behold in the Old Testament, it's like saying, guess what? So I've looked at all the work that man has done, and guess what? All is vanity, striving after the wind. Because what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. We found this term vanity, habel, uh, already. It's, it's that transitory steam off of a hot beverage. It's there when you breathe on a cold day. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. Solomon says, I've looked at the work, and it's like chasing the wind. One of the things that's fun is to, is to get a little two, three-year-old and blow bubbles, right? They keep going and chasing these bubbles, and, and there's this never-ending catching of the bubble and opening of the hand, and, and there's nothing there. I must have done something wrong. So they go catch another bubble, and they look, and it's not there, and over and over and over. That's what Solomon's saying here. We're, we're chasing the wind. I mean, imagine trying to chase the wind. Here comes the wind. You're going to chase it to see where it goes. It's just impossible. Look at verse 14. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading another, another article on um, the, the um, trophyization of the American youth. You know what this is, right? Everybody gets a trophy. And we, have, we live under this lie. Well, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I can't be an Olympic sprinter. I can't be that. I can't be an NBA all-star. Are you laughing with me or are you laughing at me? You can't be anything you want to be. That's a lie. What God has made crooked, you can't make straight. But here's the thing. He's never made anything crooked or what we see is bent or what we see is broken under the sun. He's never made anything that cannot bring him glory and us happiness. Nothing. As long as it's seen in relation to Christ. Basically, he's saying by his experience, I've been there and I've done that. Now, we've said over and over, you can learn by someone else's experience or you can learn by your own experience. 
I had a younger brother. I have two younger brothers, but I have one who I particularly was cruel to. And looking back now, I feel moderately sad about this. But anything that was testy, anything that was, was um, dangerous, I always made Mark do first. And Mark, he, was, uh, he wasn't afraid of anything, so he would do it. Taste this. You don't like it? Okay, that's good. I won't eat it. Touch that. Oh, it's hot? Okay, that's a good thing to know. Over and over, I just abused him. Then he outgrew me and I stopped. But the point is, you can learn from someone else's experience, and that's a, that's a wise thing to do, or you can learn from your own failed experience. The whole book of Ecclesiastes screams, learn from Solomon's mistakes. Number four, his excess, his excess. I said to myself, now stop right there. When you start saying things to yourself, there's a problem. I said to myself, he's having conversations with himself. Behold, guess what? I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over me in Jerusalem. Who were all who were over Jerusalem, rather, before me. Now stop right there. There's only two people who were that. David and Saul. So he's spiking the ball and saying, yeah, I don't know if you've really figured this out yet, but we had three kings and I'm pretty much the best. And the truth was, in terms of wealth and power, he was. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. His excess, his insight was greater because of his divine gift. He had excessive blessings, more than you and I will ever have. Can you, I mean, let's go back to those, that wealth thing. Can you imagine having so much money that there was nothing that you have to say no to? Nothing. We'll find out in chapter two. He, th- he says, well, I just wanna build some, some, uh, some big ponds, and so he built some ponds. Well, I just wanna build a palace, so he built a palace. Whatever he wanted, he could do. And he did. And he says, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. I am the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Now he was in terms of his wealth and influence, but we know that David had a greater heart for God. So it's not entirely true. He's speaking almost on a secular, secular level when he does this evaluation. But he had excess. He, he certainly should be listened to because if anyone understood what wealth and power and opportunity could provide, Solomon did. We can learn from his Experiences excess. Number five, his examination. And I set my mind. Now think about his mind, the wisest human who had ever lived. He set his wisdom, he put all of his powers of observation and interpretation, all of his divine gifts of evaluation, he set his mind. To know wisdom and to know madness and folly. In other words, he knew the good and he knew the bad. And I realized that this also is striving after wind. You know, it's, it's important to be smart and wise. It's important to go to school. But think about this. If we really believed that the most critical answers to life were answered by education, 
There should be a line from Lawrence all the way here with people standing, just, not, just can't wait to get into the library at a university to see all those pearls of wisdom. My experience at college is that no one stands in line to get in the library. He examined with his mind, his exceptionally divinely gifted mind, life. And his conclusion was chasing wind. It's ethereal. You, you can't have it. Verse 18. Very, very important. It's the key. Solomon actually felt and understood the emptiness and pain of what he discovered in the emptiness and pain of life more than you and I would because of his divine gift of wisdom. Look at verse 18. Because in much wisdom, there's much grief. And an increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This is autobiographical. He's saying, God gave me this wisdom. He gave me this blessing to have insight. And when I applied it to see what I could extract out of life to find meaning, satisfaction, importance, purpose, when I didn't find it, I felt worse than the average guy who's just trying to make a living day to day. My philosophical musing left me empty-handed. I had a multiple uh, major. I was, a, I was a triple major in, in college. Don't be too impressed. I spent six years there. One of them was philosophy. And I became good friends with some of my philosophy teachers, really good friends with, with two of them. They were nice guys, really nice guys. But they were so observably unhappy. Just not content, not settled. And when they spoke of these problems in philosophical terms, when they, when they would, would read Sartre or, or Kierkegaard or Spinoza, and we would read these guys, and they would have these, these really negative views and conclusions on life, and they would agree with them, you could see that that was resonating with them. They said, I get it. Life doesn't give us any breaks. He examined life. His credentials are impressive. Exaltation, the highest in his game. Exploration, he had every avenue to explore the world. His experience, nothing that he wanted to experience, he had to say no to. His excess, he had more than he wanted. And his examination, he had the ability to look into anything and everything. Now, as you will notice here when we take this transition, that's really just an introduction to number six, which is his experiment. So he says, look, this is what I was like. This is who I was. These are my credentials. This is why you should listen to me. And then we find in verse one of chapter two, I said to myself, he does it again. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So, enjoy yourself. And guess what? It, too, was futility. That's a summary for what Solomon is going to teach us. And we're going to look at each of these experiments in the coming weeks one at a time. Because this is what's impressive 
The experiments that Solomon did when he said, okay, what what does the world have to offer me? What are the pleasures that I can get from the world? When he tested these pleasures, see how different these pleasures are from what you and I have. Chapter, uh, uh, verse two, I said of laughter, he tried fun. Maybe if I can just enjoy myself enough, that will bring satisfaction. In verse three, he tried intoxication. Maybe if I can have enough drugs or alcohol or get a buzz strong enough, that will bring me happiness and satisfaction. In number four, excuse me, in verse four, he tried materialism. Maybe if I get what I want, if I have what I want, if I buy what I want, if I obtain stuff, then I'll be happy. He also, in verse seven, tried money. Maybe if I, my, my, my stock portfolio is impressive. Maybe if I've invested in a diversified way and I'm safe from any economic collapse, maybe it's in money. He also, in verse eight, tried entertainment, which is interesting. He says, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but I, I provided for myself male and female singers. There were no iPods. There were no, there were no eight-track tapes back then. Any enjoyment of music had to be live music. Think about that. Nothing recorded. So he provided for himself his own iPod. I provided for myself my own concert all the time. Maybe it's in music. He also, in the end of verse 8, tried sex. Remember, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He could go the better part of three years with a different sexual experience every single day. Maybe happiness is found there. Then also in verse 9, he tries competition. Maybe if I'm the best, I'm the boss, I'm the top of my game, I have uh, the, the respect of my peers, I'm a CEO, CFO, top of whatever, maybe if I'm the best, I'll find satisfaction. Now, if I could cheat and look ahead at Solomon's experiment. Let's look at what he concluded before we even start the the exposition of this experiment. Look at verse 10. Imagine being able to say this. This is shocking. It's almost hyperbole, but it's not hyperbole. This is real. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Can you imagine being able to say that? I did and had anything and everything I wanted. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for my labor. I deserved it. Thus... I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. Does this sound familiar? And striving after the wind, and there was no lasting satisfaction, profit margin, under the sun, outside the garden, this side of heaven. In the next few weeks, we're gonna be picking apart that experiment because I think the way that he, he applies his wisdom to look at these, these pleasures of the world are exactly, I mean, are those six categories that we, we look for as well? Well, we're gonna look at those individually and see from our own perspective what they look like in our culture and how we can fight those, 
those temptations to find meaning and satisfaction in them. Now, here's the challenge of tonight. Here's the challenge of next week, next month, and the next few months of preaching and teaching and studying Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was meant to be begun and finished in one sitting. It's a sermon. It has a beginning and an introduction and a middle and, and, and a conclusion. It's really difficult to just pick out some of these verses like we did tonight, like we're going to do in the coming weeks, and say this is a complete message. It's not. We have to keep the end in mind, which he says is to fear God and keep his commandments. And nowhere does that come into focus in the Old Testament like it does in the New, which is Christ. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, basically gives an emotional and an experiential apologetic for why we need the gospel. You won't find lots of answers in Ecclesiastes. You'll find the questions that the gospel answers in the book of Ecclesiastes. And for that, it's worth studying. So let me ask you again. You want to learn by your own experience? Or do you want to touch the stove? You want to jump off the high dive first. You want to see how cold the water is. You want to, and you fill it in. Or do you want to test and glean off the experience of the wisest man who ever lived? I mean, think about what we have here in this book. What a blessing. The wisest man who ever lived applied his wisdom to see what life could offer. And what he found is that it can't offer anything that's not found in God himself, ultimately demonstrated in his final word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna begin this experiment with Solomon. We're gonna go into the lab with him. We're gonna put on our lab coats and we're gonna watch him, what he finds with these, these, these pleasures in life, and, and all I can tell you is this. You, you want to come. This is an un, uh, unabashed, unashamed advertisement for this coming series. You want to hear what Solomon says. You are going to think he has been reading your mind or reading your journal. What he tries, you and I try all the time. What he concludes, you and I won't typically conclude until we run out of energy. What a blessing we have to see what a man looks like when he looks for life in all the wrong places. And we can find it for him and with him in Christ. Let me pray. Father, most of us keep our head in a trash can of life, scrounging around, looking for scraps and stale pieces of food to satisfy ourselves when you have offered us a banquet in the gospel. Help us to take our heads out of that trash can to look to you, to understand your, your gracious gift of meaning and purpose. Walk with us in an observable way as we look at this experiment that Solomon is going to conduct on the pleasures of the world. There, They're the same pleasures that we try, that we've tried. Father, please instruct us to learn from Solomon's example, to come to our senses earlier in life than he did at the end of his life. 
and to grasp and glory in what he longed for most, the mediator, the Lord Jesus. We're grateful for his sacrifice, his gift of righteousness, his resurrection from the dead that tunes our heart to see life in the way that you want us to. Thank you for these precious souls, Lord, who love your word. We pray again for those who were baptized, those five sweet, precious souls who now will begin a new uh, process of sanctification, use our church body to shepherd, to love, to correct, convict, to comfort, and care for them. Meet us in our greatest need. Grab us by the chin to look up at you. Through your grace and to your mercy. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.